All right, right on. That's what we're studying right now, the book of Romans. So like Jeff said, uh, Romans chapter uh, 5 uh, is where we're at today, Romans 5. Welcome to the sanctuary too also. And uh, let's read together uh, verse 12 to 14, and then we'll go through the whole chapter, uh, rest of the chapter uh, together. But verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. And we just come to you, Lord, this morning. We know that our, we need our minds to be washed and renewed, Lord, more and more into the image of Jesus we are praying, Lord, for that sanctification, that transformation to happen, and in part, Lord, through what we believe and what we know and what we see about ourselves. You say, Lord, incredible things about us as believers, and Lord, today is no exception. So we pray, Lord, and ask that as we see these things, that we might receive them, Lord, within our hearts and begin to more and more perhaps experience them and to walk in them in a practical, daily kind of way. And Father, we just are so thankful that you have taken us by the blood of Jesus from the family of Adam into the family of Christ, that you have transferred us from death into life, from sin into righteousness, and we rejoice uh, that we will be your children forever and ever. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. We pray that you'd help us to walk in it, Lord, and to experience it uh, in our lives, Lord, now and today. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We pray together. Amen. Amen. So, you know, in this world, um, everybody falls into one of two categories according to this little passage. Either you are currently in Adam, the first man, or you are in Christ, who Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls the last Adam. You're either in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam. And this little section here today is a study really of contrasts between the first Adam and what his family produced and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and what his family uh, produced. So obviously we know where we're at. We're in the Bible. We're in the middle of the book of Romans. This is a passage that is going to build the case for wanting to be in the family or in the line of Christ uh, himself, okay? So what you have today is if you're a believer, this is an announcement to you that you are no longer in Adam, but you're now in Christ, and we're going to see the benefits that are found of being uh, in uh, Christ Jesus. So it's a powerful little section that we're dealing with uh, here today. And basically, the way that we're going to deal with it is the first three verses, like we just read, are going to describe for us really in point blank terms, the chaos and the brokenness that Adam through his sin introduced into the world. And then 15 to 21, those verses, we're going to discover what Jesus did and how his act reversed 
that uh, horrible act that Adam uh, introduced uh, here to, into the world and you know, the curse that was brought in and all of that and how the redemption that we find uh, in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll admit that, um, <clears throat> I don't know, at times in going through Romans, as, even as I've taught it before, uh, I've almost thought of this little section like this standalone, like Paul is just pumping through this very linear argument that he's laying out where he's describing the, you know, in chapter one through three, the wrath of God being revealed against the ungodliness and disobedience of mankind in the immoral world and the moral world and in the religious world. And then the beautiful announcement at the end of Romans three that there is a righteousness of God apart from our works of the law and that it's revealed through Jesus Christ and that the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus, that if we believe in him, we receive justification and redemption and uh, these beautiful elements and that we get through simple faith like Abraham who believed a massive promise. We believe a massive promise and the gospel message from God. We believe in it and we simply receive uh, the imputed righteousness of God and we get Romans 5, 1 through 11 that we saw last week, the peace of God, the hope of the glory of God, the redemption of even the sufferings and trials of this life. We get God himself. We get all of these beautiful things. And then we get and we go into the life that is described for us in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And that's where we're going in the weeks that are to come. And some of you that are romans kind of people have already been like talking to me about how excited you are. I can't wait to get to Romans 6. I can't wait for Romans 7. You have all been telling me your favorite Romans 6 to 8 verse verses like you're excited about it and some of you are new to the whole thing and you should be excited about what's coming because we get some beautiful doctrines and truths and all of that in Romans 6 to 8 but I'll admit to you that um, quite often I've just sort of thought of this little section that we're about to enter into uh, today as like this here's Paul building this really beautiful argument, very linear, but you get to this section where he talks about Adam and Christ, and it's almost felt to me or appeared to me like this random thought. That as Paul is just kind of going through all this beautiful stuff, he just gets to this random moment where he's like, you know, I feel like I need to talk about this. But that's not it at all in the mind of Paul. And we notice that from the first word of verse 12. He says, therefore... Therefore, do you want to know how you get from the Romans 1 through 3 category to the Romans 6 through 8 category? You want to know how you get transferred from the life that's described there, which is just enmity with God, and get transferred into the Romans 6 through 8 life, where it is newness of life and slavery not to unrighteousness, but to God himself. You become a slave of righteousness. You're so identified with Jesus that it's like you were dead with him, buried with him, and raised with him in that newness of life. You, know, you want to know how to get into this thing where you break the cycle of saying, here's what I want to do but can't do it, or the things I don't want to do but end up doing them. You want to know how to break out of that cycle of life 
life, you want to have the experience of God as your Father and the Spirit groaning through you and feeling and knowing the truth of being adopted by the living God. You want to live under the realm of that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to be able to say resoundingly with Paul that God is able to use all things and does use all things together for good for his purposes in my life. You want to be convinced in your heart that God the Father looks upon you and and you say of him, I am convinced that if he would not withhold his own son from me, that there is nothing that he would withhold from me, that there is no height nor death nor angel nor principality nor power that can separate me from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. You want to get to that zone. That's where we want to be. You can tell I'm excited about it. We want to get to that zone, not the Romans 1 through 3 zone, but that zone. You want to get to that zone, you have to leave Adam and come to Christ. You have to be changed. You have to come into a new realm and a new family entirely. Okay, and so that's what Paul is going to explain in this uh, little section. So let's take it bit by bit. First, we're going to look at the catastrophe Adam created, and then we'll see some of the blessings that come by being in Christ and no longer uh, in Adam. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, I know I already read this, but verse 12, came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So a few things that Paul mentions there in verse 12. First of all, notice how he explains how sin is here. He says it came through a door. Sin came through a door. And the door that sin came through was one man. It came through one man. Not many people, but one man. One man introduced sin into the entire world. Uh, world, and that, of course, one man, as we see in verse 14, is Adam himself. And so sin came through the door of one man, and following then the result of sin, he says, and death through sin. Now the question, of course, is what kind of death? I've mentioned this before, but you know, God had said to Adam, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But when Adam ate the fruit of that tree, his body began to decay, of course. His body began the process of dying. He would physically die at some point. None of us ever have the disillusioned idea. When a baby is born, when a child is born, we're praying for life, we're praying for health, we want that baby to thrive, but none of us is going to pray, you know, and Lord, help them live and thrive and be healthy and also just keep on living and never, ever, ever, you know, make it past 90, make it past 100, make it past 200, 300, 400, 500, make it past 1,000, make it past 5,000. We don't even think that way within our minds because death physically is here, right? So it's here. So Adam did begin to die physically, but he didn't just drop dead physically on the spot at the moment. But God said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He died, he began to die physically, but what happened to him spiritually was death right at that moment. He became dead 
in his trespasses and sins. He became separated from God. That fellowship between God and man had been broken, and Adam spiritually, in a sense, died. What we have in Jesus is so beautiful because it reverses all of that. Adam died spiritually and eventually would die physically. But when you get Jesus, you become alive spiritually and eventually will become absolutely alive eternally, physically as well. So perhaps for some of you, you just need the simple reminder, if you're a Christian, you are alive spiritually. You are alive to Christ and alive to God uh, because of what Jesus has done uh, for you. But the line that is really important for this whole argument that Paul is making is at the end of verse 12. I want you to see it. He says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The question that gets brought up at this point is when Paul says that, what exactly does he mean? Does he mean that the way that it works is that we are all like Adam? We, when we're born, are born in innocence and have a decision to make before God. And we have a choice. And when we sin, then that's when, you know, death and corruption and all of that comes into our lives. The Bible does not teach that reality. What, Adam se- what Paul seems to be saying here, excuse me, is very simple. He seems to be saying that when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. We all sinned with him. That in other words, Adam was the representative of every human being that would come after him. That's why Paul said in verse 14 that Jesus, that Adam was the type of the one who was to come. That's Jesus. So now I know that there are cultures on earth that just wouldn't have a problem at all with someone being the representative for everyone uh, else. And by the way, this is something that is constant throughout the Bible. There's a time where Abraham offered a tithe to a guy named Melchizedek. And in the book of Hebrews, they say it's like the whole tribe of Levi, all the Levitical priesthood, it's like they offered a tithe to Melchizedek because Abraham, who eventually through his genealogy, his descendants, Levi and the tribe of the Levites would come, Abraham gave a tithe, so it's like they all gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Or when Achan in the book of Joshua went into Jericho and he took a Babylonian garment and wedge of gold for himself, which was disobedience to God when they defeated the citizens or the city of Jericho, God said to Joshua, not Achan has sinned, but Israel has sinned. Or for us in our New Testament era or terminology, we know Pilate washed his hands. We know that the religious leaders were involved and complicit in putting Jesus on the cross, but we understand that it was us, our sins, put Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So we understand the concept, at least biblically, of someone acting as a representative for a larger group of people. But so other cultures might say, like, that's fine. 
But we're Americans, a lot of us, and uh, we might not be as good with that. You know, like, well, Adam cannot speak for me, you know, kind of thing. Had I been there in the Garden of Eden, had it been me, like, I wouldn't have done it, you know. And you can say that all you want, but, like, you know, let's be honest. I mean, like, give me, give me a day without sin. Give me a day. Give me a week. You know, give me an hour, you know. I mean, it's there. It's in our lives. It's in our lives. But here's the thing that we so often forget. We should be thankful that it's this way. Because what Paul is going to tell us is because it's this way, it can be the way of the cross. That if one man can be our representative in leading us towards sin and death, so one man can be our representative in leading us towards forgiveness and life. And that man is Jesus. So that's what Paul is saying uh, in this little section, death spread to all men because all sinned. It's like we were right there with Adam, uh, tied up with him uh, in his uh, sin. Now, before moving on into verse 15 and beginning to see some of the beautiful things that Jesus has done for us in bringing us into Christ, uh, I should just point out that Paul, as he's building this argument, he's talking about, verse 14, he's talking about Adam. He's talking about the first man. And like the New Testament does, he's speaking of Adam as an actual historical figure. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of different thought about origins and where we all come from that are out there. Uh, Of course, for believers, we don't believe that, um, you know, substance or matter is eternal. We don't believe that matter is God. We don't believe that it's always existed. We believe that there was a point that there was nothing except God, but that that something was created from nothing by God himself. So that's what we believe. And part of what is essential for a Christian to believe is that there was a point where God created the original man and the original woman and that he put his identity, his imprint upon them, that he created them in his image. And the Bible speaks of Adam like a historical, actual, literal man. That's why he's included in a lot of genealogies in the Bible, including, by the way, the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel of Luke. So Paul just builds his whole case on this actual guy and says, hey, because he sinned, because he fell into sin, sin and death entered into the world. He was our captain, but now Jesus Christ can be our captain and we can enter into uh, him. So this whole thing is built upon uh, that uh, reality. So let's see what Jesus does for us starting in uh, verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded uh, for 
many. So Adam did the trespass, but Jesus did the free gift. Adam sinned. Adam went across the boundary that God had provided, but Jesus ran to the cross and gave us the free gift of his grace and of salvation through the offer of uh, his substitutionary death uh, upon uh, the cross. But the emphasis here in this little verse, verse 15, seems to be upon the impact of of Adam's work versus the impact of Jesus' work. And he actually uses words that sound numerical, although I don't know that they're numerical. Uh, He says there, many died through one man's trespass. And when you look back into the book of Genesis, you see that. Adam came, uh, Adam was created by God, breath was put into him by by God himself, he sinned, and then his descendants just began to die. Sometimes through murder, sometimes just through old age, but they began to die. In fact, when you read Genesis chapter 5, you could just call that the death chapter because you have uh, the, uh, you know, the offspring of Adam, his family, his descendants, and you just have so-and-so lived, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and someone li- they lived so many years, and he died. And you just have these key figures throughout Adam's generations that eventually died. There's one big exception, of course, this guy named Enoch. It says that he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we all like Enoch, but there's not a whole lot of Enochs. Most people just die, okay? So that's kind of the concept. Many died through what Adam did. He introduced death. But then Paul uses terminology and words like uh, about Jesus, like, you know, yeah, with Adam, many died, but much more have the grace of God. And, you know, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So these words like much more abounded and many, it's like he's trying to contrast what Adam did with what Jesus did. Now, like I said, I'm not convinced that this is a pure numbers game that Paul is thinking of in his mind. I think he's, in one, on one hand at least, talking about the abundance of life. If someone dies physically and spiritually by being in Adam's um, you know, ancestor or genealogy, if that's the way that it works, then when people come to Christ, it's like the version of life compared to that version of death, is just off the charts kind of life. Although, there is something here about the influence of the ministry of Jesus. It's big in scope. It's, I think, partly what Paul is communicating. I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a good chance that some of us are going to be pretty surprised on the day that we enter into full glory in God's kingdom. I think we might be a little surprised at the numbers, at the sheer volume of people who over the ages were justified by faith, who said, we are broken, we are flawed, we cannot save ourselves, we must be saved by God himself, he must provide for our justification, repented of their sin, and believed in the amount of revelation that they had at the time of God's redemptive plan here on earth. I think we might be a little bit surprised in that moment. Who knows? 
Some of us might experience a little bit of what Elijah experienced on that day in his life when he ran out into the wilderness with God and he prays this prayer before God where he's like, God, I'm, you know, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who has not bowed the knee to Baal. God speaks to him. This is, this is kind of my paraphrase of it, but he's like, this is an interesting little pity party that you're having here, but I'm the only one, you know? I get the violin out, Elijah. But uh, there are 7,000 in Israel who I've reserved who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's, there's, there are others like you. And uh, so I don't know, maybe on that day when we enter into glory, some of us might be a little surprised. Whoa, I thought it was just going to be me and a couple of my good friends. I didn't think there was anybody else that was legit, you know, kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, But he's saying here that the impact of what Christ has done, it's abounded for many and much more have the grace of uh, God. So that's a powerful thing. Then, verse 16, we have this beautiful concept. He says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Right, so what you have here is Paul comparing the one trespasses and many trespasses and the result of both. He's saying, you know, the one trespass, the, the one thing, he did one thing, and it entered, it brought in sin, which brought in death. One trespass brought in all of that because God's glory, God's holiness is that strong. One trespass, and the holiness is lost, the glory is lost. And so he says, one trespass brought all of that, but then. Many trespasses. What was God's response to many trespasses? Trespasses that were compounded over generations and years. What was God's response? God's response was the one act of the cross of Christ. So the response to the one trespass was many trespasses, but God's response to the many trespasses was the one act of the righteousness of Jesus Christ uh, in the cross. And he brought... Not like Adam who brought condemnation, but he brought justification. He brought, maybe in a sense you could say it like this, he renewed for us the innocence. Uh, it's, it's not entirely accurate to say it this way, but the innocence that Adam uh, had, we are re-given that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not condemnation, but justification in uh, the sight of God. But here you have, after tons of sins, Jesus' free gift brought justification. You might remember there also in Genesis, the time of Noah. After that whole death chapter in Genesis 5, you get to a point in human history, early human history, where the biblical record says that the thoughts and intents of man's mind and heart was always evil continually. And God made a determination to judge the world. After many trespasses, a determination to judge the world. However, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah built an ark. And whoever went into that ark, after many trespasses, this judgment, but, but after all of that, whoever went in, they'd be saved. And they'd be given an opportunity to have life given to them. The grace of God, the mercy of God. This is what we have in Jesus. He is our way of escape from the wrath of God. 4, verse 17 
If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the whole book of Romans that we enter into these great things Jesus did for us by faith. We've been saying that over and over again, right? From the very beginning, it was week two that we looked at Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, right? The, the belief, the faith, the justification by faith. We've been looking at that. We know that from Romans. We know that from the entirety of the New Testament. Notice here in verse 17, he says that those who receive the abundance of his grace. So one of the things that we know here is that Paul isn't building like a universalist kind of argument. He isn't saying Jesus died on the cross and forced salvation upon the entire world. Everyone was in Adam, now everyone is in Christ. No, there's, there's an active receiving of this message. There's an active believing of this message, faith in this message, trusting in what Christ has done. He forces himself upon no man. But notice here in verse 17, this is very cool, he says that what we had in Adam was death reigned. Death reigned. It's past tense. What we had in Adam, death reigned. But notice this, what we have in Christ, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness By this, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you here this morning need to recognize and remember afresh, if you're a believer, just how victorious you are. It's not because of your doing, it's because of Christ's doing, but the description Paul uses is, it used to be that death reigned over you, now because of Jesus, you reign in life. This could probably like impact our attitudes a little bit more in just the way that we like exist here uh, on the planet. Yeah, I've been telling you guys about my softball team. I'll probably be doing that for the next month or so because it's that season. And so it's just my life. But um, I'm kind of soaking it up right now because it's my last year coaching these like little, little girls. I've got like eight-year-olds all the way down to four-year-olds on the same team. So you get these little, littles out there, you know, and it's just a lot of fun. And... Um, but I have this one little girl on my team, and she did something recently that has not happened in four years, uh, where she came, she did something that they always do. She asked me, Coach, what position am I playing today? You know, they always are asking that, what position am I playing? And, uh, you know, with the little girls, they, when, they're, when there's big girls in the league playing with little girls, you have to make sure the little girls are safe in the field, because they don't pay attention. You're like, down and ready, and they're like drawing a flower, you know. So... <laughs> You know, this little girl, I said to her, I'm like, well, today you're in the outfield. And usually the little girls, when you tell them that, they're like, you know, they get all bummed out. But she, when I said this to her, I'm like, you're in the outfield. She's like, Jeff, you know, she's so excited. And this is like her thing. She's just always doing that. I've been watching her. Every time she gets in the on-deck circle, she's waiting to bat. She's like looking around. She's not paying attention. And then the girl in front of her hits and the whole play is over with. And I have to call her. I'm like, hey, you know, I call her. And she turns and looks at me out there because I'm pitching to her, you know, and she looks at me, and I'm like, you're up, and she's like, yes, you know, like every time, you know, I'm just like, man, you know, I look at that, 
you know, she did this thing actually the other day where she, the, she wanted the ball. She wanted the ball. The ball was actually finally hit to her. She was so excited. She just ran straight for it, like full sprint, running towards this ground ball. It's coming towards her. But she just didn't know how to, like, stop. And so the ball, like, got by her, and so she tried to pivot. Every time she tries to pivot, practice anywhere, she falls down. So she fell. Cleats are like a new thing, you know. So she fell down, and then she got up and ran after it, and, and her teammate got it, threw it in, and she's crying in the field. She's crying. I go up to her. I'm like, what's the matter, sweetie? Why are you crying? You know, are you okay? I thought it was because she fell, and she's like, she got the ball, not me. You know, that's what she was crying about, you know. And it just was like, man, I was like, man, the, just the life. You know, you're, li- you're alive. You want to be here. You're excited about this. You know, you're, you're passionate for it. You're alive. And I don't know. I think that there is a big part of us as believers that we need to remember how alive we've been made in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the description, we reign in life through what Jesus has done for us. You are alive to God. This is the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. When Paul says that, he's borrowing from the Roman Empire who had very specific rules about generals going off into battle. And they had certain levels of victory where if you ticked off the checklist of a certain type of people group and a certain amount of uh, you know, enemy against you and you did all these various things in a conquest, you would actually get a triumphal procession in Rome, a parade. And as they would go through Rome in this triumphal procession, the general would be there riding through the city, but so would his forces. They would be with him. And the flowers would be, the flower petals would be cast upon them and incense would be burned. And what it was was the smell of victory. The smell of victory. And Paul uses that image to say, Jesus, he won the victory. And he is now leading us in triumphal procession that through us would be the fragrance of Christ, specifically the fragrance of the victory of what Christ has done. I remember being a kid and just, because I'm just naturally speaking a glasses half full kind of person. By the grace of God, I'm like able to get out of that. But that's just my natural man. And I remember being a kid and sometimes I'd get on this like downward spiral, you know, like everything was horrible kind of thing. And every once in a while my dad would say this really helpful thing to me. It was just the thing that helped me like understand what I was doing. He's like, come on, Eeyore. And what he was doing was referring to the Winnie the Pooh cartoon where there's this donkey named Eeyore who's just always like, it's all horrible, you know? And that was like his thing. And like for me, it just helped me go, nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to be that guy, and thankfully in Christ Jesus, we don't have to be because we reign in life. We reign in life. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been transferred from Adam into Jesus. This is not what you have in Christ Jesus. He says he makes us reign in life through the one man, uh, Jesus Christ. So I think that's just a powerful reality. Therefore, okay, verse 18, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be be made righteous. So Adam did an act and it led to you know, condemnation. Jesus did an act that led to righteousness and justification uh, for everyone who believes. Uh, Adam did an act that, verse 19, made us sinners. Jesus did an act in verse 19 that made us uh, righteous. So we're there. We're now made righteous in the sight of God because of the act of uh, Jesus. We joined, in other words, the act of Jesus. We were previously connected to Adam's act. Now we are connected to Jesus' act. Very closely connected to Jesus' act. You need to remember that as you consider your relationship with God. If you're a believer, you're connected to the act, not of Adam, but the act of Jesus. In the latter parts of Genesis, there's a character named Joseph who, when he was younger, was sold into slavery by his jealous older siblings, his brothers, They sold him into slavery. He eventually went to Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, he eventually was brought before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He was brought before Pharaoh because Pharaoh had had two dreams that he knew were from God, but he didn't know the meaning of these dreams. And because of Joseph's history in the prison, people had come to know, oh, he can actually interpret dreams. Joseph said, It's not with me, it's with God. But he was brought before Pharaoh, and he interpreted the dreams, and basically the dreams meant, he says, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years where there's abundant crops all throughout the land. The water will be flowing, the rain will come, the rivers will be pumping, there will be abundance for seven years. But after those seven years, there will be seven years of famine throughout the whole world this whole region, this whole land, seven years of famine. And then Joseph did more than interpret the dream. He gave advice, sound counsel. He said, so nobody knows those seven years of famine are coming. So during the seven years of plenty, you should bank it. Build storehouses and store it up so that in the seven years of plenty, you'll be all right. So here's what happened. During the seven years of famine, the whole world started, the whole land started coming to Pharaoh saying, we've run out of food. And Pharaoh basically gave them food in exchange for land, and it expanded the power of the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh was very thankful to Joseph for his act. Eventually, Joseph's brothers became some of the people who were also hungry, and they had to come to Joseph. They didn't know that it was him. Joseph saw them and knew that it was them. And he devised a means for them to be able to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and for them to be reconciled. And he revealed himself to his family eventually and forgave them, said what the enemy meant for evil, God has used for good. What you meant for evil, God has used for good. But in that process then, Pharaoh heard, Joseph's brothers are here. And Joseph considered, or excuse me, Pharaoh considered the act of Joseph and favored Joseph's brothers. 
He gave them land. He gave them jobs. He gave them generations of favor inside the nation of Egypt. But he didn't give them all that favor because of their act. In fact, if he'd have heard about their act, he'd have have probably taken them out. But he didn't see their act. He saw Joseph's act and gave great favor as a result. That's what we get in Jesus. The father, the king, sees the act, not of us, but of the son. And he says, that's, that's the act now that I see, and I favor you because you belong to him. This is a powerful thing that Paul is announcing uh, to you and to me. We have a brand new category. We used to be in the category of sinners with Adam, but now we are in the category of being made righteous by God. So much so that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just very firm. Now in verse 20, let's close it out uh, together. He says, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Have you ever noticed that restriction? When you, when you get a law, you want to break it. It's part of what we do. You tell a child, no, you can't have that. They do that. I've even seen some parents do like reverse, you know, psychology on their kids, you know, like you do not eat your carrots, you know, and there's like a little moment in a child's life where they're like, I will eat my carrots, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) It doesn't last forever, but it's not the most effective parenting style, but people do it. Um, But, you know, there's just something about it, you know, something about it. The law increases our rebellion. The trespass led to condemnation for all men, but where, uh, so where this law comes in, sin increases, but grace abounds in that environment so that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's kind of the close of all of this. He's saying, you know, when the law came, it just really like, It brought out the sin. It made it more alive, more real. Yeah, the law was there to kind of keep mankind in check a little bit, but its big ministry for us was to help us realize, man, we're messed up. We need help. But when Jesus comes, that's what Adam brought. When Jesus comes, he provides a grace that actually produces a rain through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what that means is that when, when you're in Christ, there is a possibility of a real legitimate righteousness to be lived out in your life. That's powerful and strong. In other words, grace does not lead to licentiousness. Grace, properly understood, le- leads to righteousness and right living before God. When, Adam came, when uh, Moses excuse me, came down the mountaintop, With the Ten Commandments in his hand that God had written with his finger, the people of Israel were already already breaking the entire uh, totality of God's law. They were worshiping a golden calf. And Moses took those tablets and he threw them down and they broke. It It was like a statement of, you are breaking the law of God that he wrote. But now the new covenant tells us that God takes his law for believers, now if you're in Christ, he then takes his law and he can write it on, on your heart. 
not on a tablet of stone, but he can write it on your heart. Real stuff from the inside out where he's changing you. It's not just like a, oh, that person, they're a really good person. They had a really good upbringing. No, it's, no, they, they were placed into Christ. And he began to transform them from the inside out and they were changed. And that to me is one of the best um, elements of this whole thing. Because I think we spend a lot of time in our modern culture thinking about our ancestry, our immediate family, where we came from, what we got from the family we grew up in. But what Paul wants to announce to us is we all, no matter how great our family was or messed up and weird it was, we all were in the family of Adam. We were all in that family. But when you're placed into Christ, you now have an opportunity to overcome all of that and to now experience real righteousness being lived out uh, in your life. That's a very hopeful thing, I think, for so many of us. And so Paul gives us this great announcement uh, about it. So this is who you are. If you're a believer, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. Amen? All right, so we, we receive it. Let's pray it in. Father, we thank you for what you have given us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this beautiful, beautiful blessing of being transferred from Adam.